Welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I'm joined as always by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Kate, how's it going? It's, it's going pretty well. It's uh, Skype is being kind today so far, so I'm Ooh. just going to not jinx things. It's too late. It's too late. It's already been done. But so I far, I actually see my computer unraveling physically right now. <laughs> well, that would be in, that would be in keeping with this episode. So I suppose it would be. Uh, this week we're going to talk about season one, episode eleven, Roti, written by Steve Lightfoot, Brian Fuller, and Scott Namerfro, directed by Guillermo Navarro once again. Um, and as a reminder to listeners, we'll be treating this season of This Is Our Design as mostly spoiler-free. There will be a section at the end of the podcast in which we talk about uh, future Hannibal stuff related to either, uh, I guess, the last two episodes of this season, in this case, or the second season. Uh, but that will be clearly noted in the post on the website. Uh, so if anybody would like to remain spoiler-free, just avoid that section. And join us this week to talk about uh, the episode. She is the East Coast editor of Previously.TV, Sarah D. Bunting. Sarah, D. Bunting. Sarah, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, let's go ahead and kick things off. Uh, and I wanted to, to start with you, Sarah, as we do um, start with the guests on this. Uh, Will says that it's not being crazy that he fears the most, but not knowing who he is. And, and Abel Gideon, of course, also struggles with this throughout the episode and suggests that he can see what Will has become even if Will can't. So identity crises are, are pretty fairly common in all forms of narrative, not just TV. Do you find this show's handling of it particularly effective, or are you more interested in other things going on with these characters? Um, I'm interested in all the things going on with the characters and also how how the show looks. Um, I tend to be more focused on um, writing, character development, what might have been on the page. Um, so this show is like unusual for me in that I engage much more with it on a, on a visual level, but I also think they do a pretty good job with, um, with, uh, I mean, questions of identity are, are tricky. Like, as you say, it's, it's a fundament of narrative going back to, um, the Iliad, uh, if not further, um, but the way this show does it and sort of makes the subtext that all, all characters are sort of um, slivers of their own designer's self, like they're all different aspects of the, of the writer's self, it makes that subtext more text. And that can be tricky because then you're really in a sort of meta space with it. Like if the characters are talking about the boundaries shifting between them, especially in a therapeutic relationship, which is what this show concerns itself with in large part. Um, and there are several different therapeutic relationships. Uh, this show is really quite skilled at making that interesting, but not getting too uh, wonky, too twee about it. I mean, sometimes it can be a little um, much with the antlers, constantly with the antlers. <laughs> But uh, at the same time, it can be, I think it's aware of the fine line that it's walking. And when it blunders over it, I think it gets back on the right side of, uh, of it and doesn't like tend to disappear up its own butt too much with it. Um, 
Does that answer your question at all? <laughs> oh, sure, absolutely. And Sorry to bring Homer into this. <laughs> no, I mean, if we're going to go that way, might as well even go further back to uh, the epic of Gilgamesh and, and sure. say that the identity crisis in there is, is relevant as well. So, yeah, in the history of all narrative, uh, this has been a, a recurring um, thing. And I'm glad that you mentioned the, the therapeutic aspect because to me, when looking at the identity crisis, that's a, that's a great way of doing it slightly, mm, I don't know if it's differently, but it's effective because in episodes of Hannibal, you'll get uh, moments where everything else will be ignored. Two characters, usually Will and Hannibal, are sitting down in the therapy room and they address it head on. So it's no longer subtext, it's kind of just overt text and it's still very compelling most of the time. Uh, Kate, do you think focusing on, on this identity crisis a little bit more, that the Abel Gideon is a good, um, I guess, mirror of some of the things that Will is suffering through in this latter half of the season? I think he's a really interesting presence in this episode. I mean, obviously, we've already talked when he was on the, the show previously uh, how much fun Eddie Izzard is in this role. But what I really took from the episode this time through was how different the performance is uh, in this episode as compared to the first episode we see him in and and you know this the character has been struggling with just who he is and how much of who he has found himself to be it was manipulation by chilton or just you know general instability and, and so I think in that way, I mean, the first time I watched this, I wasn't picking up on the stuff when it first aired. I wouldn't have seen that. I would see just more the the straightforward, he says he doesn't know who he is. We've, we're experiencing Will not being uh, sure of who he is. Um, but this time through, thinking back to that still Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, like introduction of the character and just how still and calm he was in, in those scenes. In the first episode that the character featured in here, he's he's like almost uh, chatty and he has like this extra energy. Um, he feels like a very different person. And I, I think that is a good, uh, you know, I think that is a good counterpoint to, to Will because as Will gets more and more unstable through the season and, you know, especially in this last half, it's really... It's disconcerting as a viewer, for, for, for me at least. It's really, it's it's unsettling. He still feels like the same person. Uh, you know, maybe it's because we've been seeing the character every week. We're watching the progression of the character with Hugh Dancy's performance. But you, he still feels like Will while he is losing his grasp of what is real. Whereas Abel Gideon... Uh, feels like to me a very different character from the opening moments of this episode than he was the last time we saw him. All right. So, well, you just mentioned we're we're seeing his character and we're watching it progress, and then these two words are absolutely key here. And so, this is kind of going to be the the big general question that I wanted to address because this episode ends on the line. Uh, Sometimes all we can do is watch. Uh, and Kate, if I can ask you, what's the difference between watching and seeing, which is also something that recurs in Hannibal, and do you consider one more important for this series? It's the difference between uh, observation and understanding, I would say. So there's, um, especially the way they see is such a loaded word for this show because of, of that 
final, you know, line from Garrett Jacob Hobbs being C, this being a recurring, you know, element throughout the um, throughout the season, and um, it'll continue later on in the show as well. But so that 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 word of you know C is is very significant. So I think they're using that in this show to be more. Um, to to demonstrate or to represent a more more of an understanding of what is happening and just look not just looking not just watching but truly understanding what is going on and uh and so that's what i would that's what i would see the difference more than observing trying to figure out what's happening that's you know just taking stock of everything that's watching but truly understanding what what the other person is is experiencing and what they're trying to express to you that is what i would say hannibal means by c yeah and well then looking at that line uh sometimes all we can do is watch uh then sarah do you think that the watcher is i guess occupying a perspective that's more helpless because they are not understanding certain things by being able to see uh i think that's how I think that's how the show wants us to see it. And they're, they're quite successful in doing that because there is this, um, theme throughout the show, uh, but in the first season as well. And, um, in silence of the lambs, in fact, this is, um, this is something that Hannibal Lecter tells Clarice several times in various ways, which is you already have all the information that you need. Uh, you did you did see what you needed to see in terms of like having downloaded the information visually, but you may not have processed it. You may not have processed it correctly. You may have uh, wanted to remain in denial about it. Um, but I think Will's, I'm not, I think helplessness is a good word, but I think there's, I think there's more to it because I think Hannibal, the show at this point in the first season is also um, is also addressing the watcher of the show with Will's disintegration and sort of trying to find a way to get us like more on his side or to see Hannibal as uh, more of a villain because there's also the audience's way of seeing. And the fact is that Mads Mikkelsen is so incredibly charismatic and the show is so fascinated by uh, by him and his sort of florid evil that um, they sort of they got themselves into a maybe painted themselves into a little bit of a corner with that. So their their evolution of Will's way of seeing, I think, is supposed to also get us to see Will in a different way. It's really fun. Maybe that's not the right word, but it's the one that I, I feel strongly about at this point. Um, applying this concept to us as viewers, which you just brought up. And even in the case of Moss Mikkelsen's Hannibal Lecter, watching him, he's a, a very charismatic, um, very appealing character. Seeing him is something totally different, and it's quite horrific. So um, it, it certainly works on the dual level, and I think that that is a lot of what Brian Fuller does by having it be uh, a motif. Um, it's very effective, I think. So uh, I'm glad that we talked about it in that way and, and broke it down on, on both 
the within the series context and also kind of outside. But uh, we got a lot of things to talk about. We've mentioned Abel Gideon already, um, not just him, but we bring back Frederick Chilton in this episode, and they actually get to share a rare moment uh, for this series by having a scene in which you have some important characters interacting who are not the series regulars, so people who don't appear in the opening credits, and, and it doesn't feel like anything's missing. And also, Freddie Lowndes um, in this episode is kind of forcibly thrown in between them. Uh, Sarah, how do you respond to the handling of these guest performances, considering it looks like one or two might be dead by the end of this episode? Uh, well, th- that's always sort of the risk with Hannibal of getting too attached to like the secondary and tertiary characters is that you just don't know who's going to wind up it, like in a totem pole on a beach somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I think that I think this is one of the things that Hannibal does really well, actually, is um, at least in terms of how the actors are directed and the the freedom that they feel to riff on characters that sometimes exist like elsewhere in the Hannibal verse. Um, Raul Esparza's performance as Gideon is so like pitiable and weird and his Southern accent is so, I mean, I love the performance, but the accent is like rocketing all over the South. Um, and he is not Southern doy. Um, but I think I think the way they handled this is really smart because you do you're forced to sort of acknowledge, first of all, that these characters that you might enjoy and get attached to, like, you know, everybody has a lifespan on this show and often it's short. And it gives you a, it just gives you a little bit of a break. I mean, it it doesn't because, you know, they're like there's people are being chased and it. It's, you know, it's scary, but it's also this like intense, um, like almost therapeutic amour fou between Hannibal and Will. And particularly at this point when Will is like, as I said, disintegrating, having these other characters like sort of takes a little weight off the viewer for a few minutes that, you know, you're not, you remember to breathe. In other words, and for me, in Freddie's case, like she's so annoying that like that's where I'd sort of get up and <laughs> let's get another pumpkin ale and not listen to <laughs> this. And maybe if I'm lucky, when I get back, she'll be dead ski. <laughs> that's just uh, me. I understand, like Fre- Freddie enjoyers. I get it, but I'm I'm not there with the portrayal. Kate, we talk a lot about ensemble shows. I think both you and I uh, feel pretty strongly about that being uh, a big um, maybe improvement, but just a a big reason why the second season of Masters of Sex has worked so well. Is it the same circumstance for you in Hannibal season one where the rest of the cast outside of uh, Will and Hannibal can make an episode run well? Well, it's certainly something that I've noticed much more the second time through you know, going back and rewatching everything, I was so focused on uh, Will and Hannibal. And then, you know, in certain episodes, obviously when you have a, a focus episode, like earlier on, we had the the Bella episode, basically, or the um, the Miriam Lass episode, you know, that that's a different situation. But uh, in going back and, and rediscovering um, this 
rewatching this season, I've really noticed every moment with Alana, whereas I was forgetting many of them the first time through. And same thing with Beverly and same thing with um, Jimmy and Z. And so that has certainly been something that I've enjoyed about this time through. However, uh, I do think that that is an element that will improve in season two of the show. At, at the same time, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting thing that we can talk about more in Spoiled Meat, but it both, the show will later both focus less and then, but still use the, the supporting characters better <laughs> in the second season in a way. Uh, whereas here, you know, I'm, and Sarah, I'm with you on, on Freddy. I enjoy Freddy, but I don't like Freddy. I don't know if I'm, you know, I don't really, I, I look forward to her being killed, I guess, still, <laughs> which makes me feel like a bad person. Because I know uh, it's going to well, be entertaining, um, but but I mean, in episodes like this, I, I think I think you hit it right on the, right on the nose, uh, Sarah. It we need a break from everything else that's happening. And while Freddy's not my favorite character, um, just having anything else to focus on, even if it's you know Freddy being annoying, or um, or, or in this case, you know, watching her balance her. <laughs> Her, her her personality, her tendencies, shall we say, with, uh, you know, with sniffing out the story, with her sheer terror at what's going on. You know, like, bringing in these other characters really does help get through the emotional slog of, or the pain of what's going on with Will. And so, like, it, it's interesting because this episode just has so much Evil Gideon, so much Freddy, and so much Chilton, who it's wonderful to have back, um, that... You know that that I I know I feel like I should be talking about that, but I I'm just much more focused on what we got with Will. That's what sticks in my memory of of these this last part of the season. So while I feel like these other characters serve an important purpose, um, and are entertaining, I just I still keep coming back to the leads in the 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 back half of this part of the season. I think it's telling that we're not, we're spending a lot less time with the uh, the trio of techs in this half of the show. And I think if they were really trying to have a complete ensemble show here we would we would be spending more time with them i'm gonna just throw a little bit of love to freddie's direction uh I, I don't think the first time i watched i cared much for her character at all um but going back and doing this season for the podcast uh it's not only been like not grading to see her on the screen but there have been aspects that i've really enjoyed quite a bit just seeing her in the circumstance where you have abel gideon performing this operation on uh, on Chilton and her face the whole time is just, you know, what the fuck is going on here? What did I get myself into? Um, and the, the scene works really well, despite, like you said, Kate, um, most of my interest lying with our two leads and, and occasionally um, Jack or Alana. Well, uh, and I also want to just in, you know, interject quickly. That's not me having a problem with the actress at all. I think she's doing a good job of playing Freddy. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's you know that's just this is just how Freddie's being used at this point, and you know, so that's not on, that's not on the actress mm -hmm. um, at all. Just making that clear. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, good. All right, well, uh, let's move on, Kate. We usually talk a little bit about uh, visual detail toward the end of this this podcast, in one of our segments, but I found this episode to be particularly concerned with displaying images. Um, such as the blood coming through the white cloth and later through the tube. 
uh, and into uh, the pouch. But could you talk about water imagery in this episode and how director Guillermo Navarro handles the visual storytelling? There's so much uh, with that. I mean, it's it's a continuing thread through the first uh, season and really through the series. But yeah, I have a couple different references in my notes to, to that. Um, I think, again, it just goes back into that what we've been following with Will's disintegration and just his his collapse of himself. I mean, that visual that uh, visual of the clock was just it's really disorienting and um, it's stunning as well. It's quite beautiful. And so to take such um, I mean, water imagery is nothing new. Anybody who's taken any high school English class has talked about water symbolism, um, but I think they they use it very well and. And so, I mean, I guess I don't really have anything new to say about it other than it's good, guys. It's really pretty and it's really effective. But um, that's, you know, that, that sense of Will losing himself in this larger rush of of water or of, you know, the stronger, you know, this force of nature, which I think Hannibal very easily could represent the character that is, um, I think is very effective. And what I just keep going back to with the show, I mean, it's it's there's nothing else like it especially on network TV. But I mean, is there any other show doing symbolism like this right now? No, not on network TV, at least that I can think of. I mean, extending that to cable. I mean, like we have a very, on a show like rectify, you have this really clear focus on, um, on nature and on, on certain elements like that and a very thoughtful approach, everything, but straight up symbolism like this, I, you know, I, I, I can't think of another show doing anything like this, this type of visual storytelling and really putting you into the character's mind using these tools. I mean, I, I think it's wonderful to see. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned the, the beauty of the clock image and there's just a lot of stuff in this episode to talk about. We can talk about it later in the, the detail segment if you like, but maybe just on a more general level, um, how does this imagery work for you in terms of uh, your intake of Hannibal as a series? Is that like one of the things that you gravitate to, or is it kind of just nice coding, I guess? Um, it's It's something I gravitate to because... First of all, I think this show's ability, and in this episode in particular, to evoke fever dreaming is amazing. Um, That's another line that's easy to blunder across, and you see it in TV and film pretty frequently, actually. That it's just not, like, dream sequences tend to be very over the top, but this, uh, like, evocation of waking up, disoriented and sweaty and really not sure, uh, you know, just feeling like everything that you just experienced was very real and hoping it's not, but feeling like maybe it is. That's very hard. That's very hard to do, especially on network TV. Yeah, there's, it's clearly very important to the show, meaning the showrunners to, um, to emphasize the visual aspect of, of the show, but also, but they don't like, they're not like too self-satisfied about it. There are little visual details like um, what you can sort of tell from Hannibal's pocket square at times. Like in this episode, it was red edged with white. Like it's just little things like that, that they don't linger on it, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And some thought about it. And, 
and you appreciate that. But there's also this uh, unique um, like perspective on like while this is a serial killer case that our protagonist is trying to solve, the show is not afraid with the imagery to um, to portray death as sometimes like beautiful in this whatever sublime romantic poetry beautiful horrible way and also to bring this like you know food sex and death troika together pretty explicitly which most people are you know i think most shows are like well that's inappropriate or it's um like offensive in some way but there is a reason that all these things have been grouped together since the first Roman, um, like this image of the wavy tongue in this episode, which is, you know, it's not even phallic, like it's a phallus. They just puts it right out there. And I, th- I think that's really interesting. And I think that's a key part of the show and what I admire about it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something I admire as well. Um, a lot of the recurring imagery, we get the, the totem returning, stuff like the ice wall breaking tidal wave will exploding into water it's obviously very evocative but it always has a place in in the episodes uh in some way i think which makes it doubly effective um but let's move on a little bit more to kind of the the nitty-gritty of the plot uh of this episode so hannibal's semi-elaborate scheme here is his first line to will about Gideon being in the room and then reminding Gideon uh, that he is not the Chesapeake Ripper and then sending Gideon along Bloom's way and finally creating an opportunity for Will to go stop Gideon before he kills Alana. Uh, Sarah, given that this puts certain lives at risk and certain people into the role of murderer, what do you see as Hannibal's strongest motivation or motivations here? Um, I think his motivation, as it usually is, uh, is to move the chess pieces around and sort of to prove whether to himself or on some like subconscious resonant level to will that he's the chess master of this situation. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's funny because the show consistently reminds us that because this is a complete stone sociopath, his motivations per se are like maybe not uh, uh, comprehensible to, to us. Um, And not like, they're just not traditional motivations. Like they're not felt. It's like all intellectualized, but I would say his motivation in large part is to, you know, what is the like third or fourth move after that? I think is, I think is where he's at with it but also i think he's also like curious in that way he has of being for him fond of certain other people i think he i think he's hoping that will you know does what he expects him to do because that will prove that they're they're friends or they have some kind of they have some kind of bond whatever that might mean to hannibal i think is again not accessible to those of us with normal old non-killy sets of emotions but i don't know if that that could just be that could just be my interpretation so i'm interested to hear what you guys think of his his um what's driving him here 
Go for it, Kate. Well, um, you know, I do. There's obviously this what we've seen from Hannibal in this. Uh, there's uh, there's what we've already seen of this notion of of Hannibal setting up challenges he he wants to be seen he wants to be understood um but he also is not going to make it easy so uh he's you know he's putting will in this position and then what will he do will he find a solution or will he you know and assert himself or you know even being sick or will he do what exactly what uh hannibal wants him to do which Hannibal would like, but be less interested in, or will he prove himself unworthy and get himself killed? You know, I think that uh, this is very much Hannibal as puppet master, and he, I think I think he's just really he just wants to see what will happen. I think there's just this 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 enjoyment of just watch, you know, this curiosity that we've already seen from the character. So I, I feel like most of this is not something new. However. Throwing Alana into the middle of this is the most interesting thing for me because we've seen that they have a strong rapport. They have they have years of history, uh, which we've commented on as we've gone back and rewatched the season. It's even more evident, especially with that fourth episode. But um, but so so him being willing to just throw Alana into the middle of this, in between a very unstable Will and Abel Gideon, is interesting to me and. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't want him to be to not care if she gets killed. But I feel like I don't know how you could make any other statement. You know, I, do you guys think he cares if uh, Alana gets killed? I think so. Um, I think maybe a good parallel here would be from the episode in which uh, he sends Will to Tobias, and by the end of the episode. Um, once Tobias has come to Hannibal's office and they've had their fight and he kills Tobias, uh, he's so relieved to see that Will is alive. Um, it has to do with expectation. And so I think in that circumstance, maybe uh, Will is a person who, I don't know if he defies Hannibal's expectations, but it's not as clear cut. I think Hannibal has a, a very strong opinion and is usually right regarding most other people. You know, what are they going to do in a certain circumstance, who this person is, how they act. Uh, and with Alana, maybe this was both a test to see how Will would decide to handle things, but also, you know, could Alana get herself out of that situation as well? I don't think that he was looking – yeah, definitely don't think that he was looking to have Alana killed. I also don't think that if she had been killed that it would have been something that – he could have written off easily. What do you think, Sarah? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think he cares. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think he does in a like game theory sense. Um, uh, you know, I don't think he would be completely uh, unaffected. But like I said before, I think our our understanding. Sorry, there's a cat in the background. Apparently, she feels ways <laughs> about the show. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't think Hannibal would care in the sense that we understand it because like i said before i don't think you know i don't think sociopath serial murderers care quote unquote about things in in ways that we recognize um so from a from a construction of the match 
uh, construction of the puzzle standpoint, I think he cares, but caring about her or how her death might make anyone else feel. No, I don't think so. All right, well, let's move on to our recurring segments for the podcast, the first of which, of course, is Kate's Classical Corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the score in in this episode? Well, first of all, there is one classical piece used in this episode. It is used over the closing credits, which is something that they've done a few times in this season. I've commented on it each time. But uh, here it's Debussy's, uh, oh, my French, it's been a while, Uh, Les Sons et les Parfums. Tournant dans l'air du soir. The sounds and fragrances swirl through the evening air, which is a prelude for piano. WC uh, is a uh, romantic, uh, a impressionist, you know, romantic impressionist composer. Um, wonderful, beautiful piece. Uh, it is taken. The title is taken from Baudelaire's poem "Harmonie du soir" or um, uh, songs of the evening melodies of the evening and it is uh it's a it's a gorgeous piece and it's it's uh it's really um reflective and really thoughtful kind of piece uh, i was looking into you know listening to it doing some research on the piece for this and i just found this really great description in in the some program notes that says it seems to evoke the almost drugged state of the brokenhearted which i think is just I couldn't come up with a better way to say it myself, so figured I'd use the direct quote. Uh, it has, um, as well as just being, you know, it ties in, it's a piano piece which ties in with this notion of um, both uh, Will, also Alana, but here Will being um, a, be, be the, the composer, Reitzel, Brian Reitzel using piano for for him a lot of the time, so it ties in with that. Um, and you know this struggle that we're, of what he of him trying to you know maintain himself while uh, all the all of this pressure is going on around him. There's a regular phrasing which uh, you know so instead of having eight bars, eight bars, eight bars, um, like or eight eight twelve like Beethoven or some other people would use, um, you know more standard phrasing. It has you know like longer and then shorter phrases uh, that can kind of put you off kilter a little bit but um which i think again fits very well with the themes of both the poem and and the the piece itself and ties in nicely with with the episode but it's a gorgeous piece and is you know, i always appreciate when they put a little extra thought into the closing credits music um elsewhere in the episode there is um just a few things. First of all, the opening, that opening meal, the, the, the scoring is really discordant and very, very noticeable. Uh, when we get into Will's dream, there's very heavy percussion that reminded me of the scoring, uh, some of the scoring for the totem pole, uh, which was, you know, interesting there. Uh, the, at the crime scene, the, I just noted that the, the scoring was particularly um, beautiful when Jack is talking uh, to Will, because uh, that's not always what Reitzel is going for. But there, I thought I, I really noticed that um, when when um, Will is in the car with Gideon, uh, <laughs> that's particularly creepy. But there's there's like a tinkling sort of water sound that that in the percussion in that scene, which I thought felt very nice, uh, tied very nicely as as Will is seeing Gideon kind of turn into Garrett Jacob Hobbs, it ties in nicely with the imagery from earlier in the sense of that he is losing himself. Um, and then uh, the last thing I have is the Will and Abel Gideon scene. We have electric guitar again and some like whistly kind of sounds and that the electric guitar for Will, I always tie back into, you know, that, mo- that 
theoretically triumphant moment in the pilot or the second episode when he walks back into his classroom, which had electric guitar there. But um, so it's interesting to see that counterpointed where here it's like theoretically, again, a, a triumphant moment because he's saving uh, Alana, but it's uh, maybe not <laughs> quite so happy as, uh, you know, again, it's another moment of the you know, of technical triumph, but with a lot of psychological damage being inflicted at the same time. So those are the notes I have for the music in this episode. As we get into the end of the season, it's it's a lot more... Cons- the, the, the scoring has become a lot more unified for me. And, and so it, it, I usually have less to say because it's not like... They're teasing new elements or bringing in new instrumentation or, or new ideas. It seems to be just continuing to develop these themes, just like, much like the characters are continuing to be developed and leading to the, you know, the, what's going to happen in the finale. Um, so that's that's you know sort of just what I have this week for for Roti. Did you guys have any particular musical moments that stood out to you? <laughs> uh, yeah, so our listeners will know that. Uh... My only background in music is heavy metal. So, yeah, if you want to comment on anything, go for it. Um, I very much enjoyed listening to these notes. Uh, I'm not very, I mean, years and years of piano. Um, I did think that the WC was an interesting choice. There's this, uh, even in his, you know, happier, quote unquote, work, there's always this uh, wistfulness for the past. So it's an interesting choice. Yeah, I think it's a great note, yeah. Perfect. All right, we'll move on to the second of our recurring segments, The Devil in the Details. So any little things that we haven't talked about, um, be they visual or otherwise, things that stood out, maybe that don't warrant big discussions, but um, that that stood out in your memory. I'll start off by just mentioning that scene in the ambulance. Um, First of all, just Gideon's dialogue and that, the way that he's able to probe the, the officer and the orderly, he's just hilarious, but um, also the choreography of that, I guess, skirmish is not exactly a fight, but uh, very well done, well crafted, well shot by Guillermo Navarro, so um, that was an early highlight for the episode for me. Sarah, were there any little things that stood out in this episode to you? Uh, I think I mentioned the, the one before that, as usual, the wardrobe details were... Um, Subtle, but on point. Um, but yeah, nothing, I think nothing that we haven't, nothing that we haven't uh, talked about before. I did note in our coverage on previously.tv, there's a, we have a little chart that we do about every episode uh, and whether like this Hannibalistic element is present. And one of them is called Darkness Visible, which is to note that um, as sometimes happens on the show, that it's lit so subtly that you almost can't see what's going on, which I think is always purposeful. Um, but this this episode I found easier to see than most in the first season. Yeah, there's uh, some interesting um, lighting. I, I particularly was noticing um, in this one the the transition at the beginning of the episode that transition from Hannibal's to to Will's dream and from the the yellow sort of light of the house to the the blue of the the sky and the night and everything like there's there some really interesting use of, of color in the lighting as well i agree this is one of the more more, more visible uh episodes uh especially i think was i think feel like 10 was particularly dark and difficult to see um i've got a few things here uh 
I already talked about um, Evil Gideon, but I just he's he's just so chatty in his scene with the orderlies. That just feels completely different. Uh, I, I have a quote. I mean, I just love it so much. Um, and again, Eddie Izzard, so much love for him. Uh, Ms. Lowndes, I might be slightly fuzzy in this area of like who he is, but it's no reason to patronize me. <laughs> that was just delightful. <laughs> um, and um, the fact that Freddie actually manages to meet her, find her limit. You know, I didn't know that she had one, but she apparently does. And then uh, you mentioned the the costuming, Sarah. Alana is, you know, she's the queen of the wrap dress, right? That. <laughs> yep. And here she's in a colorful purple sweater, which is weird. Uh, I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but I had to write it down because it was totally weird. Um, and then I guess uh, <laughs> you have me as your gauge. Oh God. Who nobody wants Hannibal to be their gauge. Uh, that's during Will's therapy, and we in Chilton's office. There's a stag head. There's double stag head in his office. Uh, so I thought I would mention that. I don't know. Do you have any? Are we going to talk stag later on? Uh, we might mention it. Yeah. Um, also related to Chilton, what I had down. Uh, I'm starting to pay more attention to like just props that are on the screen. Uh, what he's reading with his magnifying glass is something called organized behavior in disaster. So that's interesting. <laughs> Very fitting. Yeah. The, the only other thing I wanted to mention was we, we praise the the high quality of acting on this series quite a bit. So I, I think I'm allowed leeway in complaining um, during a scene that I don't know if it's bad acting on Hugh Dancy and uh, Caroline Davernas's part, but you know, she says in a response to the the Ripper, you know, he will kill again, and then Will kind of just grabs her arm, and it's all really melodramatic. And I don't know what that looks like on the page, but it didn't translate well uh, for me in the scene. It seemed kind of weird and awkward. Um, but uh, yeah, I love those performers, and obviously the series. So that's not uh, a big complaint, but interesting nonetheless. Um, any other things before we move on? I mean, I guess, Sarah, you already mentioned a little bit, but, oh, the Columbia necktie. Like, cause, okay, so how many shows have had that happen? Like, Law and Order or other cop shows, like, oh, I got a Columbia necktie. And they just kind of, like, show some blood on a throat, you know, and then quickly move the camera away or something. And here, especially on the DVD and the producer's edit, the tongue moves. Oh, uh, it yeah, moves. It weaves <laughs> around like this. Uh, you know, snaky penis. I mean, it's just, and I am, sh I am really shocked that that got past standards and practices truly. Cause it goes on for a while. Like they're going to cut away from this. Right. Cause it, it looks like a penis. Nope. Well, and then for me also, he, he like Gideon adjusts it like it's a literal <laughs> necktie. I know. Which is such an, like, it's just a gruesome but fantastic touch at the same, he's just like a little, you know, straightens the tongue. He's a man who loves his work. Gotta oh, give that. Oh, God, oh. yeah. All right. With with that wonderful note, we'll move on to the final uh, recurring segment, the new one for this season of This Is Our Design, Spoiled Meat. So if you have not seen future episodes of Hannibal, fast forward now. Uh, I'll just start by mentioning... The, the scene in which Freddy gets into her car and uh, uses the phone. 
absolutely mirrors the one in which uh, it's the same thing right before Will attacks her as he's trying to explain um, what the situation is. But uh, yeah, it's so wonderful going back to this season and seeing things like that. I don't know if it's the conscious um, mirror image on, on Fuller's part, if he looks back at these and is like, oh, there's an opportunity to use this, but in a different way. But uh, that was one that definitely stood out to me. Um, what about you guys? Um, well, one of the I have a couple here, uh, but my two main ones are uh, so Alana um, her statement of you know Gideon can't be re- respond completely responsible for what he's done is almost exactly what she's going to say about Will in the next season. She's just so desperate for there to be. Um, well, I mean, in this case, it, it, for Will, she's very desperate for it, him to not be responsible. But it also, I think this also kind of previews that and adds a level of credibility to what she's saying later on. So it's not purely just her emotional connection to Will that has her saying that. Here, I mean, she doesn't have an emotional connection to Gideon other than maybe guilt at at being one of the people who played with his mind. But um, so, yeah, I just think that, that dem- you know, that's an interesting parallel as well. And then, God, how freaking traumatized must Chilton be? I mean, when we see him again, I, I he, he rewatching this episode and be being reminded that that Gideon made him watch as he did this to him. I mean, how I just, he's just, he's shockingly well put together psychologically yeah. when we next see him, and then I mean, God, when we see him again. Uh, Assuming, I mean, again, we haven't seen a body, so therefore on this show, when we see him again in season three, after what he's gone through in season two, being framed and all that, uh, yeah, it's gonna, I I, want to say, he's got to have, like, a room in his house somewhere that's, he's got, like, the, uh, the stalker wall of Hannibal stuff, I mean, he's gotta be, he's gotta have some serious rage he's not dealing with, right? I mean, he's gotta. get disemboweled and you get shot in the face something's gonna like permanently stick with you right or i guess you could just get a cool cane out of it and i don't know just hold the side of your face whenever it's cold or something but uh yeah that's poor chilton and poor poor esparza like gets to take a break by being a da on svu mm-hmm. that's a lot that's <laughs> heavy i hope he is a good therapist that's not Hannibal. Um, I'm wondering what you guys thought about um, seeing Bedelia, knowing what we know now. Every scene with that character is is more interesting now. I mean, they were I really liked them the first time through, but uh, yeah, I can't I can never quite. And I think this goes to her uh, Julian Anderson's performance as well as the writing. But I, I can never quite gauge where she's at. Um, but you know, this opportunity for friendship that she's talking about. Um, it's, I don't know. I just, it, 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 how much do you think she's placating Hannibal and terrified and how much is she genuinely interested or gauging, you know, like, do you think she's thinking, Hey, if he becomes friends with this will guy, maybe he'll stop bothering me. Yeah. Uh, or I think she thinks that that's what he wants to hear and that she's best. She, you know, she's better served by telling him what she thinks he wants to hear. But I think there's also like in retrospect, I think there's definitely this, 
you know, uh, the frog eyeing the scorpion with some, you know, pheromonal thoughts about it. Like, I, I mean, it could, could just, it is very hard to see what she's up to. And I think that's a really smart way to play it, especially, you know, given what we see at the end of the most recent season. But, um, yeah, she's, I mean, she's a little bit scrutable sometimes, but sometimes her look of terror might also be kind of being turned on. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's just me, but. It's interesting. I'll, I'll have to rewatch and uh, think about it on that context. I think it coexists, the terror and the attraction. I don't know. Max Nicholson is hot. What do you want from her? Go for it. <laughs> Save yourself. Well, for me, the, that end of season two with her is just it. She tried to run away, and then they they drag dragged her back, and so she she's not gonna be able to run away again from him. So she goes with him because that's the, just the safest place for her to be. But you know, it is possible that there's something else there as well, and uh, and uh, so, you know, certainly it'll be interesting to see how they play it next season, how they, how they balance those different, those different elements. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Um, uh, that line madness can be an antidote to the modern world. I just have a question mark next to it in my notes. So madness. So that would mean that the modern world, first of all, is in need of an antidote and that the thing poisoning it is clarity, I guess. Or just like the sense that um, everything's so, it's good to go crazy every now and again. You give yourself that. You, everything is so structured or rigid or I don't know. That's what I took um, to be the straightforward element uh, or, or like is this the literal interpretation. But it's, you know, Hannibal had the character has such a like a he's he exudes this old world kind of persona. He clearly cultivates that with his even just with how ridiculously wide his ties are. He's going for a very old world European kind of feel. And so I I, I just thought that was an interesting parallel. And that's in that that scene with Bedelia as well. Excellent. Well, the the only other thing I wanted to mention uh, in in this section for this podcast was I know we were wondering uh, last season about that scene that we get again with Will, Abel, and Hannibal, where uh, Will has his seizure and doesn't really know what's going on. And, yeah, it, it's definitely, like, restaged in the second season, right? Because this was kind of shot differently and everything. Yeah, I think so. So that's that's fantastic that they're able to recreate that so well to the point where we're not sure whether it was a restaging or not. I love that scene. It's so funny. <laughs> I said it was a minor seizure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, excellent. Um, we'll conclude spoiled meat here is there anything that either of you wanted to, to mention about this episode before we wrap up that we haven't talked about yet i think i'm good no i think i'm good too thank you for leading such an effective discussion because there's so much it's like hard to it's hard to get everything in well it done is. yeah i mean we could we could do easily two hours for each of these episodes uh but but then you'd have to edit two hours <laughs> have to do that yeah i don't know what percentage of the listeners would enjoy that and which would absolutely hate that. But uh, thank you, uh, Sarah DeBunson, for coming on and talking with us. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, You can find my work about Hannibal and all sorts of other things TV at previously.tv. And uh, I also have my own private blog, tomatonation.com, tomato like the vegetable, nation like country, all one word, 
which is sort of the last generalist blog left on the internet, advice column complaining about bad movies and the like. Uh, there's plenty of discussion in both places, and uh, we'd love to have your listeners join in. And thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. And Kate, where can listeners find you and your work online? You can find me uh, on Twitter at the Televerse, where I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. And if you want to uh, use more than 140 characters, you can always email the Televerse at gmail.com, and I can always forward those emails on to to Sean as well. So if you want to contact, you know, email the the podcast, that's how you can reach us. Um, and as for my work, you can also find my uh, other TV podcast covering the rest of TV. Uh, so much of it uh, going up every Tuesday at Sound on Sight, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, and that's the Televerse. And uh, then you can also find my written reviews at Sound on Sight. Um, this fall, I'll be reviewing Parenthood. I'm, I'm reviewing Doctor Who. Um, so if you like lots of Doctor Who talk, you can find that there. Um, and then also I have occasional reviews up going up at the AV Club. Nothing currently but who knows by the time you, you guys listen to this i might who knows maybe veep will be back <laughs> i'll be talking about that but uh, oh, uh but yeah we'll see uh you can find just can just hit me up on twitter that's the easiest way of course you can also follow me on twitter i am at my name at sean coletti but uh that's it for this week thank you again listeners uh for tuning in kate and i will be back next week to talk about season one episode 12 uh releve uh but until then this has been This Is Our Design. Please, now you're